Black Lives Matter, now and always. The time for change has been here for a very long time. We live in a system that was built on racism and relies on bias to survive. The system will not overturn itself. It's up to we, the people, to do that. If you find that statement uncomfortable, ask yourself why. If you are making excuses for police brutality, ask yourself why. If you are more concerned with burning buildings than a human life, ask yourself why. This isn't about black versus white. It's about everyone against racism. Hello everyone, welcome to the Charlie Chats Footy Podcast. Charlie Casson here, nice one for listening, cheers for locking in, I hope you've all had a good week. Now before we crack on, I've just got to say, my mind was absolutely blown last week. You may have seen on Twitter, I posted about this, but for those who didn't, someone in Antarctica has been listening to the podcast. Now there's a population, I think, in Antarctica of about a thousand people, made up of scientific researchers or tourists. A thousand of them, right? And one of them has tuned in, which is hilarious and bonkers at the same time. It would be silly for me to not try and track down this person. So please, if you're listening, drop me a message, tweet me, make yourself known. We need to chat. I want to know who you are and I want to know what the hell you're doing in Antarctica during a global pandemic. And what led you to listening to the podcast? How did you hear about it? We could Zoom or Skype and it could be the intro to next week's episode, maybe. Who knows? Just get involved. Message me. This is episode five. It's with an absolute chap. He is Sean Delaney. Sean is an actor from London and he is a massive Fulham fan. He plays Kenny in the Golden Globe and BAFTA winning TV series Killing Eve. If you've been hiding under a rock for the last two years and you haven't seen it yet, get yourself on BBC iPlayer after this episode. There's three seasons out there for you to binge. Sean also played uh, Michael Carney in Jezba OF's play The Ferryman, which was in the West End, and most recently in New York on Broadway, which won Olivier Awards, and it won Tony Awards for the best play. Sean and I were actually at secondary school together, Finchley Catholic High School. Um, he was two years above me, but we used to see each other in the performing arts block. We both went off to drama school to become actors, and 10 or so years later, he's here on my podcast, and we're chatting about football. So it's a bit of a full circle moment. It was great to have him on. We chat all things Fulham from Division 3 to the Europa League final, beating Juventus at Craven Cottage and his nervy trip back from Greece to try and get to Wembley on time for the playoff final. Will he make it? Who knows? You've got to listen to find out. I hope you enjoy it. Please keep supporting the show. Share and subscribe. If you like it, scream about it on all the socials. It makes such a difference. I really appreciate all the support. Thank you very much. But without any further ado, this is episode five of the Charlie Chats Footy podcast with Sean Delaney. Shawnee boy, thank you for coming on, mate. Not at all. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with a very simple question. Why Fulham? It's a good question. I didn't, I didn't have too much choice in the matter, um, in fairness to me. My, uh, my granddad came over in, from Ireland in the 50s. And moved into, he was living somewhere in between Wilsdon and Kilburn. Um, 
and he he was um he was a singer in the Irish dance halls and there's a load of Irish dance halls down there and down in Ham- Hammersmith at the time. But um during the day he was training to be a mechanic and a lot of the lads he was doing his apprenticeship with were Fulham fans. And so they dragged him in. So there's like a mix between the Irish community that he moved into with his work community. I think when he first he first went, um it was the time when Fulham had um Johnny Haynes and and George Cohen, um, who George Cohen was part of the '66 World Cup winning squad, and bef- up until it's a bit of trivia, up until I think maybe a year before, Johnny Haynes was captain for England at the time, and had a car accident and broke his leg, which is the only reason he wasn't in the '66 squad anyway. Um, but arguably, he was one of the best midfielders in the world at the time. And so I think McGrath went, saw these lads playing, particularly Johnny Haynes, kind of fell in love with the club, fell in love with the ground and the player. And and that's all she wrote. So what's, growing up, what's your earliest football memory? Ooh, I think it's definitely, I, I don't remember much about my first game of the cottage. I, I can tell you what score it was. I know I was young. I know I was maybe three. And we were in what would now be League Two. And it was called Division Three back then. And I think my only memory of it was staying after the game and seeing our goal scorer, who I think his name was Paul Moody at the time, was being stretched off after the game. So that's 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 my that's my clearest memory. But um, um I don't remember too much about the game, but I definitely remember a lot about the ground. And it, we we've been quite a football heavy household up until that point. But that's that's definitely my first my first memory of football. I think. So I've seen, I'm sure I've seen a photo of you somewhere, either on your Instagram or Twitter, or maybe even an article somewhere of you as a young boy wearing a young Fulham kit with face paint on your face. Yes. Yeah. That was, um, that was, that was a a couple of years after, I think. Do you know what? I I have a feeling because I'm not one to have my face painted very much anyway, even now. I think if, if I'm right in my head, I think that was when we were sponsored by Pizza Hut, which I think was our first season in the Prem. Iconic shirt. It was an like. iconic shirt. Listen, I was looking back at the, a few of the, a few of the shirts. I kind, I kind of feel like Fulham's kits have got slightly worse as it's gone on. I was looking at the old retro stuff, and maybe just because it's in fashion nowadays, anyway. But like, God, we had some good kits. That that Pizza Hut kit was obviously our first our first season in the Premiership for a long, long time. Premier League, even um, before I lose all your lose all your viewers. Um, <laughs> um, and we'd got to we got to the FA Cup semi final that year against Chelsea and I think we went down to Villa Park which I have a sneaky feeling was my first technical away game or the first game away from the cottage and we played Chelsea at Villa Park in the semi-final and got beat 1-0 I think by like a a sceptical Louis Sahar and goal or John Terry header a bit of both I think that's when I got my face painted So who who were the players in the squad that time then when you got promoted to the Premier because when I think of that pizza cut, hut kit like you said I just think of Sahar I think of Chris Coleman yeah well listen I mean I mean I, I was I was talking to my dad about this the other day we kind of um, as, a, as a Fulham fan I, I never I never ever um, slag off any teams that have like come into money and and done really well because obviously my, my first season when I was like three going on four we were in division three and then at the end of that season, and then this and this was the first season that I started going regularly when I was like four or five. We'd been bought by Al Fayed, who owned Harrods at the time. 
And so we were like this this lower league club that had been bought by a billionaire. And I do I do remember even even at the time I do remember it. Anytime anyone played against us, it was half decent. We just went and bought him in the next transfer window. And so God, that first that first season we went to the Prem, it just it just took a, another another turn completely. Because I think it, in in Division One or, or the Championship, as it would be now, we had we'd signed Chris Coleman, who was like a a top half Premier League defender because we had the money. We signed uh, Lee Clark from Newcastle, I think, who who was like a starting like a kind of mid table Premier League centre mid. And then when we went to the and that was that was in the championship, and we just we were just blitzing teams. And at that point, we had Luis Sahar as well, who was on the reserves at Mets or on the youth team at Mets, who obviously went on to be like, if he wasn't injured so much, I think would have been one of the best Premier League strikers ever. When we went to the Prem and we signed, we signed Van der Sar from Juventus, um, who the only reason he left was because they just signed Buffon for a, the, who was the most expensive goal in the world at the time for thirty-two million. And then we started. We signed uh, Steve Malbronk, who was only who was playing Champions League football for Lyon not too long ago. Um, um, I thought he'd retired. If you've been bought by, you know, this billionaire who owned Harrods, yeah. you look at now when teams get taken over by big money like City. Um, what? Why? Why didn't Fulham sort of, you know, reach the heights that these other billionaire owners have done with their clubs? Well, do you know what? I think we we kind of teased it. We, we we teased it a bit. I know I know we'll get onto this later, but um, you know, bear, bearing in mind, was it less than well 10, 10 years ago before that? We're you know, I remember my dad telling me that, that I think that the season I first went to Fulham or the season before, we were we were second bottom in Division Three, at risk of getting relegated down into non-league, and we lost at Christmas time to the team that were bottom, and then. Obviously, within 10 years, we're in the Premier League. Within a couple of years of that, we're in the Europa League final. And then that Europa League final was the turning point, really. I mean, listen, it, look, look, like, it, it gets a bit political, but, but Al Fayed had invested so much money into the club, was touring and frying as to whether he would continue investing. And then, more or less from that, that final onwards, I don't know if this is such a, such a random link, but it's, it's quite important to football. Fulham Football Club, but I don't know if you remember when um, Diana died in that car crash. Her mm-hmm. boyfriend at the time, I think his name was Dodi Alfayed, was Alfayed's son, and Alfayed chucked loads of money investigating that crash and how how his son died, and 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 throughout it, kind of like fell fell out of love with like the United Kingdom as a whole, and and particularly like the English monarchy, and and his, his attitude towards England changed. I think, and suddenly it became about well, I need to get a bit of my money back, and and he started looking to sell, and and at that point, th- there was that turning point. I mean that that I mean I know we'll get onto it, but th- that Europa League final, we played Atletico Madrid, and it was it, it was so funny because within five years of that, I think maybe even less, we were we were being relegated, and Atletico Madrid were in the Champions League final, and the difference was investment at that point. Alpha, mm-hmm. you know, and and to be fair to him, like you know, it's, it, not to be all little Fulham, little Fulham about it, but you know, we, we little Fulham on the Thames had got to Europa League final, and, and Alpha did, you know, nobody could complain about what what he'd done for us, and I, I think he he saw it as a as a as a way that he's kind of washed his hands of the club, and he's given us he's given us everything as as football fans. 
that we could ever have ever, ever have dreamed about. And then the investment stopped then. And also, I think at that point, a billionaire running a football club isn't really like, isn't really the exceptional thing anymore. Like every, everyone else caught up. You know, you know, you know, Man, Man City had, had been taken over at that point, and then suddenly there, there was this massive gulf, even even within like f- financially and like the size of teams. Where so, suddenly, like if you're a Premier League team, the chances are you had a very, very, very rich owner. But the gulf in between that and and the top, depending on who was willing to invest or not, and who had money to throw away, I think that was the big thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, we'll touch on we're going to touch on the Europa League um, campaign in a minute. But I just want to ask, like me with Barnet, I mean, you try to get to as many Fulham games as you can. Yeah. But obviously, with our jobs, you know, if you're in a play, you know, the chances are you're going to be doing shows on a Saturday afternoon, which means no footy. Yeah. I certainly have, but have you missed any big games in recent years that, you know, you were just absolutely devastated you couldn't get to? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I miss some games I don't regret missing either. Um, <laughs> it's like, it, it, was a, it was a funny one. I did, um, I did the, the, the ferryman in town and before I started it, we were, um, uh, this is the season we got promoted, um, but before I started the job, we were mid-table like we were playing we were playing really well we just weren't getting results and it didn't really feel like I was missing out on too much I, I just thought maybe that that year wouldn't be our year but luckily the ferryman came around and it was the most amazing job and, and I, don't, I don't regret I don't regret missing the football and, and luckily with the championship now and again you get um, you know one one every one in every two games is a, is a midweek game in the evening and, and so you'd, you'd find a, you'd find a stream or you find a channel showing it and you'd be running up and up, up, up after after you seen to, after the dressing room to try and check on the score and, and see what was happening. But um, but almost from the day that we opened in like January and or late late December early January, we went on this unbeaten run for more or less the rest of the season, and we went from kind of lower mid table to third with a little push towards automatics at the end of it. And so I missed this entire unbeaten run. Which to the point where like I had there's a little story in this when when we got to the playoff final I was in Cos in Greece at the time because about maybe two two months into the run of the ferryman we all agreed to go on holiday after after the show was done and I booked it and at this point we weren't even close to playoffs never mind you know challenging for automatics basically I, I I was in I I I went on holiday knowing that we're in the playoff final, having booked it ages ago and could not for the life of me find a flight home for the final. And then, you know, I left it for a couple of days while I was out there because I, I didn't want to be stressing out while I was on my holiday. And then luckily this flight, well, it was two flights appeared. And luckily it was, on, it, was a day, it was a day before I was meant to leave anyway. But the playoff final was on and it was the first time we'd been to Wembley since 1970. And also it was potentially the last time we'd get to Wembley you know, for my lifetime, known Fulham. Um, and luckily I found, I found this flight where, so I, I traveled from a little airport in Kos into Basel airport in Switzerland and then transferred over and then from Basel into London. And which, which only gave me like, I think two and a half hours to get home, shut my stuff down and get to Wembley. And then there was a delay on the flight. We're on the we're on the plane waiting to take off, and, and a, a delay came on. I'd I'd be having a panic attack. Oh my god, man! It was so stressful. That whole that whole day was just it was nuts. It's my it's maybe one of my favorite like 
footballing moments. But I, I just I was convinced I was gonna make it wasn't gonna make it and I'd spent money trying to get home in time for it. And also I, I didn't want to like you know, my my dad and my brothers were there and I didn't I didn't want to miss out on that. And luckily we arrived, I bombed out of the airport, managed to get home with maybe an hour to go before kickoff. And luckily I was I was living in West London at the time anyway, so it didn't take me very long. So I got there about half an hour, got to Wembley about half an hour before kickoff, sink to Guinness. And then um and then if my, my heart rate wasn't through the roof already, obviously we all won up against Villa at Wembley and we've got a we got Dennis Adoy sent off with about twenty minutes to go, which is the longest twenty minutes of my life, I think, to this day. Not that I change it though. It's, it's an amazing way to get promoted. What was that like, you know, when the final whistle went and you you find yourself back in the prem? Oh, it's emo- it is emotional. I won't I won't lie about that. I think um me, me and my brother Ryan should shed a shed a tear or two. It's just it, it's just it's so much more than getting promoted during the playoffs. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It's just it's the it's the least healthy way to. You know, if you can get all max, then do that by all means. But um, a trip to Wembley, and you know, there was forty forty odd thousand Fulham fans who I didn't even know existed in this like wall of white at Wembley uh, Wembley Stadium, and just the, fo- the, the the football we were playing at the time, and you know, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily that close a game until until we got allowed sent off. But the whole season we were, we were playing like brilliant football, like football capable of, of competing in the Premiership. I thought anyway. And sorry, it was the fact that we like we kind of stuck to our guns and we didn't let the moment take the, the moment kind of get to us, and and then just having forty thousand Fulham fans going nuts to the final whistle in Wembley Stadium, which you never thought you'd ever see um, in the Fulham capacity. So I, I remember, I remember because um, Wembley Stadium used to used to do all the all the uh, the concerts and stuff. I remember mm. booking that, thinking, well, I might as well go there because I'm not going to go there as a Fulham fan. So, um, but it was it was well worth the wait. So you. You find yourself, you know, partying, celebrating at Wembley, having getting promoted, and then fast forward a year, you're going yeah. back down. Why weren't you able to stay up? It's, 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 it's difficult to know. I think I think it's a lot of things. I mean, li- listen. L- luckily, in a, in a similar way to the ferryman in London that time, this is the positive side of it. I did the ferryman in New York from December of that year as well, so I, I missed a lot of the. Just after Ranieri came in, I missed a lot of that, and we were, we were just getting battered, and it just wasn't fun. It's it's a difficult it's a difficult one. I mean, you'll know as well as me the whole um, the whole immediate success in football nowadays. And I don't I, I'm, maybe this maybe it's easier for us to to look at it from a different viewpoint because we support teams that haven't always had success. But I th- it's just the idea we, we we got all this money to go to the prem. We'd invested loads. We'd bought all these players. I think we'd bought too many players. Some some of them are you know. Who didn't look very good for us are having an amazing season in the top flights of various leagues at the moment. If you overhaul your squad so much, which we had to, we had a lot of loans and we didn't have a big squad when we got promoted. But then you've got to make sure those guys gel in time. And, and we bought a lot of late transfer window, uh, like on the last day. But I think we signed like four or five players. And so there was that Slavisa Djukanovic, who was the manager who got us promoted. I have to say, because I remember going to our, our first game in the Prem against Crystal Palace at home. And I think we lost 3-1. And they had three attacks the whole game. We were playing such brave football. We were just going out to out, outclass and outscore everyone. But every time we got counted, you know, teams would score against us. And I, I, do, I do feel like if we kept Slavisa for longer, it would have clicked in and, and we would have may, maybe stayed up. When Ranieri came in and Ranieri did that typical kind of manager's thing of 
finding the favourite player from the manager before and isolating him to make a statement and then going all defensive for a team that can't defend anyway. We had Ryan Sessegnon at the time, who I think is still recovering confidence-wise from what Ranieri did when he came in. He was flying. He was flying. He was flying. He's, um, don't get me wrong, listen, the, the Premier League was a big step up for him, um, a big step up for all of them. But especially at that young age, when like confidence and playing time is, is a big thing, having another manager come in and going, nah, you're not ready yet. I mean, you got us here and, and you've and you've kept us in it so far, but you're not good enough or you're not experienced enough. It does a lot of damage. And just, yeah, it, 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 and we suddenly went from, I mean, if Fulham, no matter how, how bad we've been and no matter how low we finish on the table, there is, there is a real pressure on any manager to play attractive football. Um, because we'd rather, we'd rather, as fans collectively, and I, you know, I hope I speak for most of us, we'd rather go and, and see an attractive brand of football that we, in, in our recent history, we've always had, no matter what level we've been at. And, you know, fail trying that than turning into any kind of like long ball, you know, two banks of five. You know, I, I, I find it, I mean, maybe I, I've been spoiled otherwise, but I, I find it very boring. I don't, I don't think it's a very Fulhamish way of going about things. Fulhamish. Fulhamish. That's a, that's a it gets chucked around a lot now. It's a, it's become a bit of a, a a word for us Fulham fans in terms of anything that like, um, like all this, uh, the football stopping as soon as Fulham start to click into some some sort of gear. I mean, obviously this this pandemic is is crap for all of us, but timing wise, it feels like a very Fulhamish thing. <laughs> like a Fulhamish thing would be to go and you know batter Millwall five nil and and break records for possession stats in like the football league history, and then the next week go away to Barnsley and get battered. Um, that's a very that's a very Fulhamish thing. I'll tell you what wasn't a very Fulhamish thing. Yes. And that was that was getting to the Europa League final no, in two, 2010. That was nuts. I mean, let's talk about that. It's, it, a couple of weeks ago, you had the 10-year anniversary of that final versus Atletico, which you mentioned about in Hamburg, which we'll get to in a minute. But I want to start with the campaign itself. And I think, you know, there's no better place to start than the last 16 against... Juve, um, just talk me talk me through those two legs because yeah. I mean it's it was pretty bonkers. It was nuts. It was nuts. I mean, I'm glad you started there because we we started we had to qualify for it. So our preseason was spent flying around Eastern Europe and like random places, qualifying for the Europa League. Never mind, you know, starting at the group stage. You had you had Vetra and won six 0 on aggregate, and then you had you went to Russia and played Amkar Perm. Jesus. And won three two on aggregate, one nil away and three one at home. And then you obviously got put in a group with Sofia, Basel and Roma. Yeah. Um which was which was a hard enough hard enough group anyway. Um and then before the Juventus I think the game before Juventus we, we played Shakhtar Donetsk, who who been in and around the Champions League, you know, forever. In fact I think the reason we played them was because they've been they finished third in their um in their Champions League group that, that season. Maybe the best team I've seen at the cottage, maybe ever. And that, uh, up there with uh, the Man Cities and the Liverpools um, and the, the Fergie Man United squads that, that I've seen. They absolutely battered us. And they had the most... They had like a young Fernandinho and they had Willian and a couple of, They just had a load of young Brazilian kids who have now gone on to be like megastars. But they battered us and we beat them, and I think that's that was a big thing. Like confidence-wise, 
that last 16 was when it started turning into like, well, we, we'd beaten all these teams that, that everyone had written us off against. And Juventus was the pinnacle of that. And we were, we were quite confident going into the away leg. And then they just they just battered us. I think it... Yeah, just talk, talk, talking about that away leg, you go to Turin, right? And after that game, you've lost 3-1. Yeah. If someone had said to you that night, after that first leg in, in Italy, that you'd be in the final... You would you would have just not believed. No, that. not at all. I mean, I, I I'd love to know what the um what the bookies would have said at that point. You know, it would be, I'd be a rich man now. But um, you knowing well, just knowing that after that game, you knew you had to go to Craven Cottage and score three. Yeah, and then we went one 0 down in two minutes. Trezeguet, yeah, yeah, at home, and that was, that was the other thing. It's like. Got as stressful as it was and as magic as it was. Some of the players that turned up to Craven Cottage that season, it was just nuts. And obviously, we knew we were, we were playing Juventus and, and we we had a, you know, Cannavaro who just won the World Cup um, as captain for Italy, you know, against Bobby Zamora of all people. And you kind of go, well, you know, you know, we love Bobby Zamora, Bobby Zamora is ours. But, um, you know, when you when you put him up against the, a World, World Cup winning centre back, like where th- this is this is where we kind of, we're getting golfed a bit. And after that first leg, it, it really did feel like that. It kind of felt like it was one step too far. But then that night at the cottage was just unbelievable. Were you there? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Two games I missed because of, um, I think I was doing, I was either doing my GCSEs or my A-levels at the time. I think it was my A-levels. And Bless him. I mean, my 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 dad's my dad's always always second to be to Fulham, and is half the, half the reason I'm such a big fan anyway. But you know, at that time, you know, important, seemingly important, important uh, qualifications to get at the time. Not that it's done me any good. You should have gone down to the White House at uh, school. Had a had a knock on Mr. McKenna's office and said, "Look, come on, sort me out." Yeah, I know. I should have. I should have. Because it was at that time I was only I was only just getting into acting at that time. So I was like seventeen, eighteen. And I knew I wanted to go into it as a career, but I, I didn't have any experience in it to kind of back me up at all or, or, or to like justify to my dad as to why, why my levels wouldn't mean anything so that I could go to the, to, to Fulham. But I'm, I, I watched it from, from home on my, like standing on my sofa with anxiety. And he was home late that night, if I remember. It was going to extra time yes. until Dempsey scored. Yeah. Didn't they have, Eight men or something, or nine men. They had nine men by the end of it. So Cannavaro got sent off after our second goal because seemingly everything he did to Bobby Zamora in the first leg, where he just bullied him, Bobby Zamora got absolute revenge and just absolutely bullied Cannavaro for, for the first twenty minutes. And then Cannavaro lunged in on lunged in on Gear, I think it was the last man running in to stop us getting a third or a second, and got himself sent off. And then the kind of whole momentum changed, and, it, and from that point on, you started to you started to believe that maybe maybe we could turn this around. And even an extra time, the fact that we had we had another man, you know, if we could, if we can nick goal late, but obviously Dempsey, Dempsey scored that unbelievable chip, and it was nuts because Dempsey didn't play a lot that season. It was really weird for for a player who's obviously like as well renowned as he is, and went on to Tottenham afterwards, and you know, a couple of seasons later was like our player of the season. But he, he came off the bench and and a couple of times that season did did little stuff like that. It was nuts. You obviously call it, you obviously could beat Juventus crazy night at the cottage into the quarterfinals. Yes. We're going to just skim skim over this yeah. one, and then you get Hamburg, who at that stage in the semi final, you know, I know Atletico was still in there, but everyone's sort of 
you know, the bookies' favourites uh, to get to the final would have probably been Atletico and Hamburg because Hamburg were hosting it. Yeah. So obviously you go there in the first leg, draw nil nil, and then tell us tell us what happened at the cottage. Oh, so I was there for that night. That was nice. That's maybe that's maybe it's maybe one of the best nights at Craven Cottage in our history. I think. Uh, again, we went one nil down. Maladin Petric scored this free kick from about thirty yards away into the top corner, and it was nuts because you know typically if anyone scores a thirty yard screamer against you, you kind of just you sit back and go, well, okay, it's been nice while it lasted, and and you know you don't you don't save those, so you know fair enough. You know it's 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 it's, it's been nice. Like what what a great thing to talk about, and then maybe about three seconds after the goal, and and I have to say the away fans throughout that whole season in the Europa League were nuts. They were so brilliant. You know, you kind of get like all those different cultures, footballing cultures from like European teams and, and how much it means to them. And even the teams we were beaten, you know, comfortably would come to the cottage and they'd just be, they'd be so loud the whole way through. Um, and there'd be flares going off. But so anyway, the Hamburg fans were going nuts. And then this chant started and it's a bit iconic now in football, in football history. I'm not, I'm not a big one for like reminiscing on, on chants or songs and, and stuff like that but this chant started off in the in the back of the Ham- Hammersmith end where where I stand and it was like stand up if you still believe and unfortunately I mean the thing with Craven Cottage so you get you got a lot of people even at, in the European nights would, would have a lot of people sitting especially along along the Thames and, and the Riverside stand and the Johnny Haynes stand and it's like so this chant stand up if you still believe and just went on and on and on and we kind of drowned out the away fans cheering their goal the whole of the cottage stood up and stayed up for the rest of the game and then it's just like we cranked into a different gear and just absolutely battered them like relentlessly for the for the rest of the game two really quick fire goals because obviously at one nil down you're out but you know 65 minutes on the clock one nil down yeah knowing you've got to score two in half an hour yeah and then to get two goals in the space of six six seven minutes yeah it must have been crazy it was nuts it was nuts yeah I, I, I mean it was on um uh the Fulham website replayed it the other day um on its anniversary and i kind of i, I forget how like how old our squad was you know with with, with a whole team of, of, of players who, who were at one point really really good and playing in like like top level prem prem teams who'd all come towards the end of their career to kind of give themselves another kickstart again and, and play under Hodgson, who was very tactical. And, but I just remember that first goal. I remember watching it from the cottage and, and Danny Murphy, who was our captain at the time, putting this long ball over the top, which we didn't often do. I'm sure Van Nistelrooy was up front. That yeah, he was. He was, wasn't he? God damn, I know. Like some, of the, some of the players there. Um, I mean, Van Nistelrooy was obviously towards the end, end of his career there. And he, he listen. He you know he he had a he had a history of, of just battering Fulham as well. So yeah, Simon Sam Davis got that that equaliser, and then it kind of just felt like we were going to do it. That's really odd. It, it just it just felt like the whole the whole footballing world, and they and they were at that point. I remember um you know Fulham had become. I mean Liverpool were in the other semi final, but a bit of people. It felt to me like the football community had really got behind the idea that you know that the little club in London had gone from the qualification processes to the semi final. And we're in touching distance of, of a, a European final, and it kind of just felt like the, the whole world wanted us to go through. And then Gera got that that winner, and I've just I've never seen anything like it. Do you remember if the Liverpool Atletico semi final was the night before or the night after? Like, did you know who you were going to be playing in the final at that point? They were, I think, they were the night after. They were definitely the night after because there was that natural anxiety of um, 
there's that thing of like, well, we don't want to go to, you know, as, as great as it is to get to, get to the final. And, and obviously we, we weren't thinking, we weren't too delicate about who we were playing and to get there in the first place was amazing. But if you were being like really romantic about it, playing another team from England who have beaten you a lot in previous seasons would kind of diminish the idea of, of going to Hamburg to have another European night mm-hmm. again, to, to have an all English night. And also just in terms of like, in terms of for presence, I mean, because Liverpool have such a huge fan base. And this is the point. So like the other funny thing about it is that I think in Hamburg in the final, I think there was up to 10,000 Liverpool fans there, even though they didn't get there. Who had bought tickets. Yeah, because they'd already booked flights. They were convinced they were going. So they were the night after. And also, I think, I think in a funny way, I mean, we, maybe we underestimated them. I mean, we clearly did. But I think we were hoping, like Liverpool had beaten us in the league. That's it. I think we'd, we'd drawn against them and they'd beat, beaten us. So I think optimistically, we were hoping for Atletico to dink him out because we thought we'd have a better chance against them so they were the night after and then and then obviously Atletico got, got through I think an extra time yeah they did they, they get, Diego Forlan scored twice oh, Diego Forlan man uh, that guy still haunts my dreams he does it was one all until you know extra time he'd done well but I'm just looking at the teams now I don't know if you remember this in that Atletico team on that night 10 years yeah. ago you had a 21 year old Sergio, Sergio Aguero, Aguero yeah you had a 20-year-old David De Gea in goal. Yep. Uh, you've obviously got Forlan, Simao. You remember Simao? Yeah. He was there. Reyes was playing. Uh, rest in peace to Jose Antonio Reyes. Yeah. But, I mean, you've got all these world-class players and you look at your team, Chris Baird and Aaron Hughes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. up against, you know, Aguero and Forlan. That was it, man. Do you feel like, you know, you were out of your depth? Do you know what? I think by that point, like, Fulham fans didn't know what being out of your depth was anymore. Because it's it's the same thing with like you know, I mean Hamburg had Zay Roberto in midfield. They had Zay Roberto that might be in Wolfsburg, but they had Jerome Boateng mm-hmm. at the back. They had Mladen Petric, who was like one of the top Bundesliga scorers at the time, who scored the freaking against us, and Ruud van Nistelrooy. And then before that, we had with Wolfsburg, who had a young Edin Dzeko up front, who was bagging it in. Also, Wolfsburg had won the Bundesliga. It was the first time Bayern. And or Dortmund hadn't won the Bundesliga the season before. And so they dropped out because they finished third in their Champions League qualification groups. But they were they wow. were German champions. I think they had Bozagli, who is it Bozagli, the um Italian centre back. And um, they played mm-hmm. for Juventus and won a and won a Champions League or got to the Champions League final Juventus not too not too long ago. He was playing for Wolfsburg. And then obviously you've got um you know, the Juventus team speaks for itself. You know, David Trezeguet and Del Piero came on towards the end. Cannavaro was obviously centre-back and captain. Buffon was playing in goal for the first leg and got injured, thank God. Some of the teams, like some of the players that we came up against that season. But then, you know, listen, and Sergio Aguero at the time, we didn't have a clue about. But God, he just taught, like, Fulham got his name on the team sheet. But I think their man of the match that day was... This Sergio Aguero, like this little little lad who was just stronger than everyone else, quicker than everyone else, picked on Chris Baird, unfortunately. And I think also by by the end of that final, we were it, it felt like we were playing to do to leave it up to penalties and hope the footballing gods were with us again. You know, I mean, Fulham, Fulham have never been in many penalty shootouts in, in my lifetime, but it, it's a it feels like a very English European final thing to do is to get to penalties. It seems also like for any one player to be responsible for for losing for losing a final based on a missed penalty or you kind of just wouldn't wish that on anyone especially that that Fulham team who had got there in the first place because suddenly to, to to have to have one person to pin it on for missing a penalty was that campaign a Roy Hodgson masterclass or was it you know it was just luck what was I it I think it's a bit it's, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say it was a bit of both 
you know, Roy Hodgson, you know, he's, he's, had, a, he's had a bit of a, a tough time of it since. You know, the season before, the reason we we were qualifying for the Europa League is because we finished seventh. You know, there was, and that was back then when there was like, a, there's like the obvious top four and then there was, I think, Liverpool and, and I think Liverpool in the top four at that time, but like, but, but you had, you always had like Everton, Villa, City at the time who were sort of flirting yeah. with you know you and then Spurs. Is, is, it was it was the start of Spurs starting to get quite good, but we finished above Spurs the season before, which is nuts to think you know where they've gone to now and where where we've gone to. And so Hodgson had this way of playing. He's like he had all these like really really good, slightly aging, technical, technically really really brilliant footballers. Just drilled them so much. I was I was watching an interview with Bobby Zamora the other day, and he he reckons by the end of like one season playing with Roy Hodgson, he would know how to play left-back or right-back in the Roy Hodgson team if he needed to. And also, it's like, if we ever got a goal against anyone, especially away from home, like, we were the masters of, like, apart from the Juventus game of, of like, an away team, of just, like, you know, we, we'd save all the fancy stuff for the cottage and, and, like, the attractive football, but to go away and just shut teams down and just stop them from doing whatever they wanted to do. And obviously, we had, we had Breda Hangeland, who I think could have played at a higher level than us. If he'd if he'd left after that season, he was too loyal. But suddenly, you know, I mean, you you said earlier, like Aaron Hughes, you know, Aaron Hughes is like a decent, you know, should have been seen as like a, a decent Premier League centre back, which he was. But that season, like under Hodgson, the two of them together were just were easily like, you know, as we did, like an easily like top top eight, top seven centre back partnership. Well, hopefully, mate, the uh, you know the good days come back because that was a that was a special moment for Fulham and you know everyone associated with the club. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, listen, I'd love football back in some capacity, regardless of whether we're we're rubbish or not. I, I am missing it a lot at the minute. I don't know about you, but it's um it's it's, it's become very clear how embedded in our culture of football is. I think throughout all this, isn't it? Hundred percent, mate. It's it's you realise how much you know how much of a big part it plays in your life. Yes, yeah. it's, it's I've realised I've realised how much I think about football. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah, and it's just not the same feeling waking up on a Saturday morning. You know, whether that be you go into the game or whether you switch on the telly, it's just emptiness, emptiness, and there's nothing we can do about it. And the safest way going forward, who knows? But I just can't wait for that day to to go down down the hive and or go to the pub and watch Sunday and just have a pint and watch. The yeah, TV. it it does it it really does kind of this is really showing the gulf in between like financially between the top t- top leagues and the, and the bottom leagues but what's happening with Barnet um, financially through all this is it is it hit them really hard or? so I recorded with Darren Curry nice. and his episode came out a couple of weeks ago and he was really honest he gave a really honest interview and um, I asked him about his future and you know whether he plans on being at Barnet long term and he just said that he, he said he's been furloughed and he knew as much as me he was just really uncertain um, all of our backroom staff got given their notice of when they're going to leave. Um, I think it's had a massive effect on our academy. And for us, our academy is huge because we, we haven't got the funds to go out and buy big yeah. players. So we, we rely a lot, on, a lot on our academy. For example, we had a player called Jack Taylor, unbelievable player. He's been with us since he was, I think, 16, 17. He's 21 now. We just sold him in January to Peterborough for 500 grand. And for us, that's that's yeah. huge to, you know, from nurturing a player and not spending a penny yeah. on him. To get him 500k, it's, um, it's a massive thing for us, but it's, it's tough. You, no one really knows what's going on. And we've got a striker on loan at the minute called Paul McCallum. And I asked Darren if we were going to be keeping him. And he just came out and said he can't see it happening because of... Well, that 500 grand you got as well. I mean, nobody can see this kind of stuff happening, but I take it that five that five hundred k is going to be eaten into to keep the club alive 
while all this is going mm-hmm. on, right? So it almost becomes like a nullified transfer, right? Exactly. And there's team there's teams down to be fair, right? We're we're lucky. We're one of the lucky ones in non league because we've got we've got amazing facilities. Mm-hmm. Um it, it brings in money. There's a bar there. There's a gym there. There's a function room. There's always something going on. We 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 are okay financially, but there's teams in our league. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like the championship, right? There's there's it's very rare now. There's a team in the championship that hasn't been in the prem, and it's the same with the conference. I mean, there's a lot of teams in the national league who have been in League Two, which is it's so tough to get out of. There's so many big clubs down there, but some of the clubs that aren't so big. Your Barrows and and teams like that, who financially, I don't know how they're going to survive. How they're going to survive as a club through yeah. this? It's it's tough. It's tough. But because also at that level, I mean, you know, you know, players' wages aren't. It's one of the things that upsets me with like people always associate professional footballers with having like this amazing wage. But like at that at that level, it's like you know, you're just getting by. And I remember watching that. Um, I don't know what you think of it as a, as a Barnet fan, but do you remember that Salford City documentary they made? Yes, I do. And I know they they've kind of like I mean they're they're clearly a club that have, have just had investment chucked to them to to try to work work their way up. But I, I remember mm-hmm. it being really interesting when the decision to go from semi pro to pro happened because some players were getting more money doing their day job and and playing on the weekend and getting a wage from the club as well. Than they would do if they mm. just signed up for full time with the club, and the same same with the managers and stuff like that. And you kind of you kind of realise, you know, but apologies, it's not it's not far away from from that. And so it's really difficult because as a professional football player, if you've got a family to look after, particularly at that level, you can't afford not to be being paid or or, or take a wage cut or any of that stuff. As much as you love football, because you know suddenly you chuck family in the mix and you realise there's things a lot more important. So just before we finish, Sean, I want to wrap up. I've got one last question that I've been asking all my guests who come nice. on. You've got to pick one player, past or present, right? You can play them on a big screen in a biopic of their life. Who are you going to play? Oh, who could I re- realistically play, casting-wise, or uh, or who would I? Our mate Ed, a couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. ago, right? He said he'd play Adriano. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh god. I mean, we sort of got to throw casting out the window here. Okay. It would be it would be tough to put your finger on that. I mean, go for the story, the 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 story you want to portray, the the stories you've heard or things you know about. I think I think it's quite easy. In in my head I I'd love to be I think it'd be a pretty boring biopic, but I'd love to be uh, handsome enough to play Scott Parker, I think, because I also think Scott Parker looks like he's an, an extra extra taken out of Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, <laughs> doesn't he? Doesn't he just look like a like a, like yeah. a forties like mid war young lad? It's like as well, and he used to just have this shirt tucked in. Like, he's so old school, like hair perfectly yeah. combed over, like none of this ticky tacky nonsense. Where he could do it, just like getting stuck in shirt tucked in, always respectful. Um, but I think biopic wise, I mean, it's been done before, um, but George Best. Um, hands down, what a yeah. fascinating, fascinating life. A really tragic, unfortunately. You know, you know that whole he's kind of one of the first celebrity footballers, as it were, and obviously had a dis- disease with the drink. But what a player! People always talk about that comparison as like who's the best football player ever. Um, and obviously you got Chuck Sedans and Ronaldo's and, and Messi's into the mix now. But um, you know the whole the whole chaps on Maradona and George Best and, and Pele. But like back then, George Best was doing it hungover or still pissed. So if you could, 
God knows what he would have been like if he if they had him sober. And I've always found it interesting because obviously football's evolved over the years. I've always found it interesting to see, you know, your George Best, your Maradonas, your Bobby Charlton's, your Pele's, what they would be like in their prime in a Champions League final now with Messi, Ronaldo. It's, it's strange because you just don't yeah, know. Yeah, you don't at all. I think we'd be surprised by like what, what players would be more efficient for today's game than, than before. I mean, also, I mean, you stick... You stick Messi in back then when they're not as protected as, as players and you, you, you see some of the tackles that George Best had put in on him. You kind of go, you know, Messi gets chopped in half for not even a yellow if he, go, if he goes into back then. All right, mate. Nice one, Sean. Thank you very much for coming on. It was lovely no, to No, likewise, Charlie. Thank you so much. This is this is class. This is the closest thing I've had to football in, in ages, mate. So uh, it's, um, it's been much appreciated. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you know exactly how much you're going to get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. P-O-D-G-O dot C-O.